Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasant duties tonight of introducing Mr. Wanderer White. Many of you know him, and he's a member of the Council of the Society. I think you were at the Bristol Aeroplane Company at one time, not now directly associated with aircraft, but um, always taking a great interest in this particular subject. We've asked you to come forward so that you'll be able to screen the names when the projection is made from the epidioscope. Without more ado, I'll ask Mr. Wanderer White to give us his lecture. The illustration of this lecture is really due to the courtesy of the Thames River Police, much as you may be surprised, because, as you may have guessed, I'm somewhat eccentric, and one of my eccentricities was living in an old Thames sailing barge, which after 163 years came to a somewhat untimely end, and in doing so went down with most of my historical records. Uh, the river police very kindly came up with a plastic dispatch case in which most of these papers on the names of aircraft were luckily floating. This is a quite remarkable coincidence, so you can thank them, and it's also an explanation as to why some of the photographs are perhaps not as good as they might be. Now, this is a subject which I became involved in in a rather curious way. I was in the Air Force, and very early on in the war, to get away from nasty, noisy, somewhat dangerous aeroplanes, I went on leave to Cornwall. And there I had a friend who ran a bird hospital. And she also uh, was a woodcarver by night and a bird doctor by day. And we got on to the subject of aeroplanes, and she said they were nasty, noisy, and dangerous, which, of course, I promptly disagreed and uh, said that, in actual fact, quite a number of aircraft had bird names. Now, this is one of the most unfortunate things I did in my life. She promptly said, well, in that case, I'd like to have a look at the list. So in such time as the war spared, I started compiling this list. It was absolutely formidable. It was a frightful task. I became deeply involved in it. And in fact, as you shall learn later, it took the best part of 15 years before I uncovered a rather tangled story. The subject itself is of absolutely no importance. It is neither scientific nor any great historical significance, but it is, at least to me, been a very fascinating story, and I've learned a lot of mythology, ornithology, history, and the strange sidelines of aviation that I don't think I'd otherwise have learned. If I could pass some of this on to you, well, I hope it'll be of some value. Now, it has been published, and I shall have tonight to skip over a great deal of detail. It was first published in the Aeroplane. It's also been published to some extent in Air BP, and it was the theme of the garden party, the Royal Aeronautical Society garden party at Wisley, so much of it has been seen before. It has once been the subject of a lecture to the Kronfeldt Club, but this is the first time to the Royal Aeronautical Society. Now, I was rather interested some years ago in finding a very old quotation of 1611, which was made by Miles Smith, who was the Bishop of Gloucester, in which he said, Niceness in words was always counted the next step to trifling, and so was to be curious about names too. Hence, this supports my contention that this is a rather trifling subject. 
Another one I came across was Fitzgreen Halleck, who lived from 1790 to 1867, in which he said, one of the few, the immortal names, that were not born to die. Now, I'd like to think, perhaps, that Churchill get his, got his idea of the few from that, and it did, of course, tie up the subject of names. From this, apart from being eccentric, you may gather that I am somewhat of a romantic. And I suggest that, ladies and gentlemen, if you weren't somewhat of a romantic, you wouldn't be here tonight. I think aviation has always had a romantic side. Man has striven to fly. He's risked everything he has to fly. And there is a terrific romance about it. And I think something is lost in aviation when it just becomes a matter of pound shillings and pence and of economics. It's an enormous subject when you get down to it. And it's remarkable how many tens of thousands of aeroplanes there have been. And some of these have been new, at least new to this age, which I have discovered. In fact, I'd like to show you the first one. Now, if anybody would like to tell me what that is, I should be very surprised because I discovered it in these researches. We will be going into a great deal of detail, but I don't want to get too interested in this because you will know a great deal more of the detail probably than I do, and the intention tonight is to talk about naming and how the names came about. There are also many side quirks of this history, and that was the original Britannia. Now, as I was closely connected with Britannia for some years, I was rather amazed to think what a long time it took, even longer than we suspected, to get into service. That was known as the Flying Staircase. The only splendid thing about it was it looked like a staircase and it never actually flew. If you want to know more about it, perhaps uh, uh, one or two in the audience will tell you. Now, of course, this subject of naming did carry on, as we'll see. That, I think, you will recognize. It took 1910 for Britannia to come right along there to the uh, late 50s. That some romance and the main name meant something was evidenced, I think, in this advertisement, which you may remember, of Britannia herself looking very patriotic. And, of course, it had an irresistible appeal to BOAC. Right. Um, I don't intend to go into any more cartoons after that, but at least this gives me the theme. Now, I'd like to break away and become a little more serious. Mostly, we find that the systems of naming aircraft are those of military aircraft. So on the civil side, although it is a subject on its own, I don't propose to say anything. This is a military history of classes of aircraft rather than of particular individual names. The very first names of all, I think you will find in the balloons. There were many of those, we haven't time, but one I could just give you by way of quotation is that of the Nassau balloon, uh, which is well illustrated at least in this building. We then come to the gliders. Uh, they were the next ones, and uh, Percy Pilcher, who so very nearly beat the Bright, Bright Brothers to it, 1897 to 1899, he had a series of gliders. They were the gull, the hawk, the scarab, and the beetle, all these of names which have come up time and time and again. Then, before military aviation was really established, we had the nicknames, a word we will come across in many connotations. There was Handley Page's Bluebird, there was the Mayfly, there was the Lakes Seagull, 
and quite a number of others. We haven't time to spend on those. We then come really to the first really official aircraft naming system. Now, this was when Colonel O'Gorman was in charge of the RAF at Farnborough, those days, of course, the Royal uh, Aircraft Factory, and not as now the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Now, there was published RM-59 in November 1911, and this gave the explanation of what these aircraft systems were. And in actual fact, there is a great deal of misunderstanding on this subject. Even in those days, the achievements of the British aircraft industry, if there was one at all, were not thought of very highly by those in command of affairs. And so, although we are very familiar with SE, BE, RE, FE, and so forth, they were based on French names. Santos Dumont, a gentleman. So SE was Santos Dumont Experimental. Later, it became to be known as Scout Experimental, but that is its true origin. Canard, or tail first type, and that is uh, a drawing of that particular aeroplane. The black and white aeroplane, incidentally, uh, all these black and white drawings were by my wife. This then became Scout Experimental in later days. This is the SE-2A. Uh, it is now entirely British, and Santos Dumont was forgotten. Similarly with the others. Henri Farman. Again, he was an Englishman, actually, I believe, although he lived in France. And uh, his type of aeroplane, the Pusher biplane, became FE, although later on we became a little more patriotic and we tended to call it the fighter experimental. Seems to me just like a box kite, but uh, that was the Farman. Then of course there were the two, the short horn and the long horn. The name came because it was so easy to fly, it was known as the mechanical cow. And of course one with a horn, one without, long horn and short horn. And there's the FE2B. Now, yet another Frenchman, whom I'm sure you'll recognize, a rather melancholy gentleman with a large moustache, and if you don't recognize him, you'll certainly, assuredly, recognize his aeroplane in the background. B.E. Blerio Experimental. This was supposed to be a reconnaissance type. There he is, making his last final dive for the cliffs of Dover. And there we have the B.E. 12. Now, there were more of these. There was the TE, which is the Tatan, which was supposed to be a pusher behind the tail. It was never used, actually, but later it came on in 1916. There was a TE-1, which is a two-seater experimental aircraft. Then there was BS, which was a sort of Blerio scout. There was H, which was hydroplane or the seaplanes. Now, these, although this has been disputed many times, is the official explanation of where those names came, or rather those designations came from. Now, also at this time, of course, a lot of these aircraft became as nicknames. For instance, the FE-2B, the Fee Plane, the B-8 was the Bloater, the RE-2 was Fokker, Foller, Fokker Fodder, Stability Jane, or Quirk. The authorities of the day 
didn't care for these names very much, and in fact they were beginning to get into a lot of trouble. One or two of the more unofficial but recognised names were, anybody know, ignoring the ravages of the times? A camel, and so it got it from its hump on the back. Should you have forgotten what a camel looks like? This one, I think, needs no explanation. A one-and-a-half strutter got its name from one-and-a-half struts. Now, here we began to got into a lot of trouble, because some aircraft were called bullets. There was a Bristol bullet, and there was a scout bullet, but at the same time, they were also known as scouts. And this, in the communiques and the instructions in the uh, Royal Flying Corps in France, began to get very, very confusing. Which reminds me of during the war, the Air Ministry got an urgent telegram from t signal from Takaradi in West Africa where there was a Sunderland flying boat squadron and a request could they have six replacement air crews as quickly as possible. So a lot of young air crews were rapidly rounded up over the weekend, given their shots, given 24 hours rapid leave and flown out. When came back an agonized uh, secondary signal, we asked for air screws, not air crews. So an, uh, uh, an air ministry order, an AMO, was immediately published, and from that day the Air Force has known them as um, propellers and not air screws. And this was much the same sort of thing that was going on between all these scouts and bullets in France. And that was the Bristol bullet, or Bristol scout, make your choice. Now, uh, whether the scout was the Indian scout, or you like to consider him as a boy scout, but in actual fact, the appellation did come from the old name of the Indian scouts, whence the word found its way into the English language. Now, this photograph, the aircraft you will recognize uh, immediately. I was very lucky to have been up in this aircraft this late summer, and it was a very wonderful experience. It had been an ambition of a lifetime to fly on a Bristol fighter. Now, that photograph has some historical significance because that is, in fact, the very first flight of an aircraft in the Royal Air Force, which was in the 1st of April 1918, when the Royal Air Force was formed from the Joint Royal Flying Corps and the uh, Royal Naval Air Service. Now, again here, we began to get into a great deal of trouble. Now, there were a large number of Bristol fighters, and they had an enormous number of engines. They had Lerone engines, they had Clerget engines, they had the Rolls-Royce Falcon, they had Hispano Suiza engines, and it became very difficult to know what on earth which aeroplane you were talking about. So, the uh, Ministry of Munitions at that time came up with a suggestion that the Bristol fighters, the Brisfit, should have a whole series of names. Now, this was the first official suggestions of names. And, of course, Brisfit was merely a contraction of the Bristol fighter. The names suggested was the Mercury, the Orion, the Comet, and the Saturn. And when I suggested to de Havilland's that theirs was not the first comet, they were rather hurt about it. But the Bristol fighter was to have the name of the comet, Mercury, and Saturn, and Orion. Very interesting, of course, that Bristol later did use both Mercury and the Orion. 
Now, I'd like to just divulge, uh, divert here to a strange piece of history. The Bristol Aeroplane Company was formed in 1910, and the very first aircraft they built were under subcontract from the Zodiac Company of France, who were in fact airship manufacturers. Now, Zodiac appeared on the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company's letterhead, and in Fulton House, for those who've been there, you will still see the sign of the Zodiac in the main hall. This association was given up after a time, but it had a remarkable association with what was to come later. And just about this time, the Bristol Scroll was introduced. Now, although Bristol's gave it up, much to my regret, you'll find that there are about a dozen firms in Bristol who still use that scroll, including the Bristol buses. And everybody in Bristol, myself included, imagined that the Bristol Aeroplane Company took over that scroll from the Bristol Bus Company. I did some research into this and found that it was not so. But in actual fact, because of all the Bristol aeroplanes, particularly fighters, that the tramway company had made, there were two brothers who were uh, each secretary of the two companies, the Smiths, the White Smiths, they... Uh, tramway company asked the aircraft company could they use the Bristol scroll as their trademark. It's a great lengthy legal document. Interesting thing is it gives the Bristol Aeroplane Company a right of six months to have it withdrawn from all the buses. An interesting thought if it ever came about. So that is now gone for good, but it still remains on the buses. However, it did start as Zodiac. Now, I met in the lift this afternoon Sir Roy Fedden, the name to all of you. His early history was that he was chief engineer of Brazel Straker, which is a combination of two firms making motorcars, Brazel up here and Straker in uh, Bristol, or maybe in the other way around. And they were at Fishponds in Bristol uh, making motorcars. And the Straker Square, for those of you interested in cars, was quite a well-known one. When the, about 1916, they were asked to make subcontract engines for Rolls-Royce. And they were making bits of Falcon, bits of Eagle, and so forth. And uh, interesting that the subcontract agreement by Rolls-Royce strictly forbade Bristol to design liquid-cooled engines. So Sir Roy Fedden had absolutely no option but to start designing, being the man he was air-cooled engines, and this was really the beginning of the long line of Bristol engines. At that time, of course, it wasn't Bristol, it was Brazel Straker. And there was a drawing bird, a drawing bird Hercules, and a Mercury, and one other small engine whose name I forget offhand. Now, in 1920, uh, Brazel Straker had to pack up because of lack of war ministry contracts, and they were taken over by a Cardiff firm of shipping and Welsh uh, coal uh, suppliers called Cosmos Engineering. Now here again is another strange coincidence from Zodiac, Mercury, Saturn, Orion, Cosmos Engineering, taken over in 21 and became the aero engine division, or really it wasn't a division until later, but a part of the department of Bristol's. So they came ready-made with this name. Now, as we will see a little later, 
When the official names came out in 1918, there were a number of exceptions, of which Constellations was one, and this was reserved to the Bristol Aeroplane Company. This, of course, became the Aero Engine Division, and is now, uh, or was until recently, uh, Bristol Sidley. But it's very interesting that the Bristol side continued on with that wonderful tradition of the constellations right from the beginning, or even before the beginning, right through till today. What's going to happen now, I don't know. It's also interesting, talking over some of these names, that the Sunbeam Aero Engine Company could go back to 1912, when they made a whole series of airship engines for the Navy, the original uh, army aeroplanes like Beta and Gamma and so forth were in fact taken over eventually by the Navy for administration and Sunbeam supplied a lot of the engines. The names were Arab, Afridi, Dayak, Maori, Cossack, Kafir and so forth. There's quite a long list of them. This perhaps uh, was a Navy tradition of classes, just like you had classes of destroyers and cruisers, of classes of boats. And this was the tribal class of aero engines. Now, I suggested earlier on that in the official war communiques and the production orders and all the rest of it, the war office got somewhat tangled up into what aeroplane they were talking about. And the Baylash report came out in 1916, ostensibly to look at the uh, performance of the Royal Aircraft Factory at Farnborough, because Parliament was very upset that everything was becoming official and ministry, and that the private aircraft manufacturers and engine manufacturers were not allowed their head in proper design. The Baylash report brought about a lot of changes, and the aircraft manufacturers no longer had to produce farm types. Now, I have this original document. It's one of the few treasures I've kept, the Baylash Report of 1916. And I'd just like to read one paragraph from it. I cannot help thinking that steps might suitably be taken to adopt a system of nomenclature that would indicate the engine and horsepower that is combined with the machine itself. So that is, when, say, the BE-2C is referred to, it is not necessary to investigate with what engine she is fitted in that particular instance. You see the problem. Certainly, so far as RAF designs, the present more or less haphazard and confusing system of nomenclature ought to be capable of improvement in the way of consistent plan. He then goes on to speak of all these problems of do you mean a fighter, do you mean a scout, or do you mean a bullet? They're all beginning to mean the same thing. I urge this point as well as those immediately preceding, whilst the development of military aviation is still in its comparative instance. For in my opinion, anything like haphazard nomenclature or standardization should not proceed further, lest it someday lead to serious misapprehension of one kind or another. Now, from that document, gentlemen, stemmed the official system of naming that, with modifications, is carried through in British military aviation to this day. I believe these two documents that you see here, they're available for inspection afterwards, are the only surviving documents, and they too came out of the Thames, of what was known as TDI 506 and 506A, Technical Department Instruction from the Ministry of Munitions Department of Aircraft Production. From the Baylash report, uh, 
and incidentally, it was was a ministry instruction that these Bristol fighters should have these names. That was dropped because that was at the end of 1917, and just before it was going to be put into effect, uh, they decided that it was really time they did something, take up the recommendations of the Baylash report, and they came out with this system. Now, it's not going to be very easy to follow because uh, it's a difficult document to put across. But this is the very first bit of all. Now, I think what's interesting is that it had a military duty, a class word. It could either be a fighter, a bomber, or a heavy armoured machine, or it could be machines operating by land or by sea. The class word for fighters was zoological, vegetable, and mineral terrestrial. There was a size of machine and a subclass word. If it was a single-seater, it was zoological. Insects, birds, and reptiles. If it was two-seater, it was mammals. Botanical, a three-seater was flowers, four-seater was shrubs, and a five-seater was trees. This was rather remarkable when you look back on it. And then you went on to a lot of others on the other side, if we could see the other side now, of size of machines, where you had mythological Greek, Roman, Eastern, and Egyptian, and mythological Northern European ideas. Machines operating at sea were perhaps a little bit more sensible. This is where single-seaters were river fish, two-seaters were saltwater fish, and three-seaters were shellfish. Well, there was an absolutely horrified outcry from the aircraft industry about this particular system. Uh, it's rather fun to think of what might have happened if there'd been a three-seater, say, Handley Page, which would be known as the Handley Page Hydrangea, or there might, of course, be the de Havilland Delphinium. Uh, these never came about. In fact, the only uh, uh, aircraft that ever had any effect out of this one at all was, if it doesn't come up now, I'll show you in a, uh, immediately after this. Now, another interesting thing about this is that it was decided that the aircraft would be allocated an alliteration. Now, the provisional lists to initial letters to indicate designs. It was the aircraft manufacturing company who had AM or AB, Armstrong Whitworth, AR or AW, Austin's AU, Beardmore BE, uh, lots of them we've long forgotten, but however, Bolton and Paul B.O., I'd ask you to remember that one. British and Colonial was B.R. or C.O., Ferry was F.A., so forth and so forth. Handley Page, H. Short Brothers, S.H. Sopwith, S.O. or S.A. or S.N. And this history of alliteration, of course, has gone through uh, most of our aviation history. Uh, the sycamore, Bristol sycamore. Now, this is the only tree I know of, and of course it came out some 40 years later than that original TD-506. It's interesting, however, that Japanese, during World War II, called after, well, most of their trainers after trees. Now, this system wasn't very well received, so it was hastily... Uh, revamped and became TDI 506A and 
again, awfully difficult to follow, but you will see that, in fact, it was very considerably simplified. Basically, single-seaters and more than one-seaters remains illogical, but they had subdivisions for land or from ships' decks for insects, reptiles, and land birds, or mammals, as quite sensibly seaplanes and flying boats were now waterfowl and fishes. Incidentally, by about 1927, they'd completely run out of waterfowl, so they had to drop them. Multi-engined aeroplanes, they were subdivided quite in detail, and they were names of France, Europe, Great Britain, Asia, or Africa, and these were then merely geographical names. The appendix, the alliterative uh, two letters of the aircraft company remained. Now, this led to a remarkable amount of trouble. For instance, would anybody like to guess what that is? I'm probably cheating, because if you've got very good eyesight, you can read it at the bottom. But that is a North American songbird called the Bobolink. Now, there was an RAF fighter called the Bobolink. Now, when I say there was an RAF fighter, I think we've got to be just a little careful here. There was a prototype fighter, and in fact, all names up to 1927 were given names, even at the prototype stage. However, they ran through all the dictionaries and ornithological dictionaries so rapidly that a ruling came out in 1927 that only a production order would merit an actual name. Now, that is the bobolink. Why an RAF fighter should have the name of a North American songbird is mysterious until you realize that it was made by Bolton Paul. It therefore had to be B.O. And there is only one bird in the world which begins with B.O. So there was the bobolink. Perhaps this is the reason why Bolton Paul found it very difficult to produce another fighter, because they couldn't find a name for it. Equally, you might like to think what that one was. Now that is an ara. Again, uh, ara, A-R for Armstrong Whitworth. That was a South American parrot of fairly remote lineage, and this is where the Armstrong Whitworth Ara came about. Now that little fellow is called a Vrio, which is a sort of green green finch. You know where the word virulent comes from, it's the Latin virus, I think, of Vrio, which means green. And the Vrio, again you ought to be able to guess its name, V-I was for Vickers, so that was the Vickers Vireo. And I bet you nobody at Vickers know that they once made a South American green finch. Oddly enough, all these names seem to come from North and South America, every one of them, and not a single one of them came from England at this time. Now that is the Guan. That was the Gloucester Guan. And that is something called the Gambit. So already this system began to get itself into a fair bit of a tangle. And TDI-506, this blue document here, and TD-506A, now became TD-538. If anybody's really interested in these technicalities, I'll be pleased to show it to them afterwards. Now, TD-538 was really a simplified combination of those two and was published in July 1918. Now, here you see we are getting very, very much simplified. 
Aircraft with one engine only, single-seater zoological, reptiles except snakes. Now let's remember that, except snakes and land birds except birds of prey. So there's more than one seat, it was zoological, mammals except felidae, that of course was the uh, cats, and uh, <coughs> waterfowl and fishes, and I've already mentioned the trouble they had with waterfowl. Then you had aircraft with more than one engine, up to a certain weight, there were inland towns in England or Wales. If they were seaplanes, there were seaboard towns in England or Wales. Over between 11 and 20,000 pounds, inland towns in Scotland or Ireland, and seaboard towns in Scotland or Ireland. So, fairly sensible. You'll begin to recognise a lot of the aircraft if you think now from that. Aircraft with one of them more engine. This was still strangely odd. This was 20 to 45,000 pounds. Male historical or mythological proper names, but are excluding names of stars and planets. Here we're back again, of course, to Bristol. Female historical or mythological proper names, and again excluding stars and planets, £45,000 and over, terminating in O-U-S-A-N-T or E-N-T. I can't think of one in that class. There was a Tarrant Tabor, but uh, I don't know what system that fitted into. And the seaplanes finished in Ick, Al, or Ur. And I don't think there were any of those either. So that side of it didn't last altogether. Now, the most irritating thing happened at this stage. TDI 538 became AP 547, Air Publication 547. And I spent 12 years, ladies and gentlemen, looking for AP 547. I wrote letters to the papers. I made a menace of myself at the ministry. But I never did find AP 547. And I don't think it ever existed. Because I then discovered it was exactly the same thing as TDI 538. So if they'd only called it a name, they'd have saved me all those years of searching. Another aspect of this particular one, AP 547 or TDE 538, is that no longer did the BOs and the BRs and the ARs apply, because you see, even in that short time, they got themselves in a bit of a mess. So now, you use the actual name of the aircraft, and this you will find thereafter. The original idea, of course, was that the name would in itself indicate the manufacturer. So now you've got Parnell Puffin, Sopwith Snail, or whatever the other ones were. And from this time onwards, uh, until about 1930, there was in the ministry an aircraft nomenclature, an aircraft nomenclature committee, and they administered the Navy. I also have a list, for those who are historically minded, uh, which presumably means all of you, of a supplementary list, January 1919, which gave some 60 designs at that time which were in production. It's interesting that about a third of these, something like 26 of them, were merely had the single word washout. I don't think they were speaking aerodynamically. Right, we now pass on to 1921, when there was yet another change. It is basically the same, but it does change in some details.
Land birds except prey, shellfish, and reptiles except snakes. Now perhaps at this time we ought to explain, if you haven't already guessed, what these exceptions were. The Felidae, the cats, of course, went to Armstrong Sidley. The snakes went to Woolsey, the Woolsey Adder, the Woolsey Python of fame. And uh, the except birds of prey, of course, went to Rolls-Royce, and they carried on right until the days of the jet. The weapons uh, went to Napier. So Napier dagger, rapier, and all those were reserved for that set of engines, and those were mostly the five major uh, air, uh, engine manufacturers at that time. The rest of them now appear to be very much as they were before, except that we have changed in the 20 to 40,000 class to male and female mythological figures and ancient geographical names. The Zinaus, Ants, Nonts, Owls, Icks, and Es still continued, but they were not, I don't think, used. Civil aircraft were also mentioned at this time. There were supposed to be historical names other than those of people, or the names of historical famous persons, or astronomical names. But tonight, we haven't time to deal with the civil aircraft. Now, at this time, uh, I suppose England was getting very security-minded, and the Air Ministry were also very concerned to make sure that the manufacturers, who were always trying to wriggle out of this requirement, did in fact carry it out. I had uh, at least five aircraft who started with one name and then became another. Would anybody have ever heard of the bludgeon? Made by Bristol. It started life as the Bristol bludgeon and it then became the Bristol bagshot. Now I'm told, although nobody can now remember it, that this was in fact in the interest of secrecy how the enemy were to be confused by being called a budgeon instead of a bagshot, I'm not quite sure. Presumably because bagshot, being an inland town, would indicate that it was a bomber, and bludgeon, I suppose, intended to confuse the enemy, whoever they were, that it was a fighter. Similarly, you found that the Handley Page Clive started life as the Chitral. Singapore, which we well know, started life as Saturn, the Westland Witch originally started as the Whelp, and the Hanley Page Horsley was originally the Kingston, which, uh, I mean, sorry, um, Hawker Horsley was originally the um, Kingston. It was Hawker Horsley, incidentally, because Harry Hawker did live at Horsley Towers. Now, these were the days of economy, and there was a specification, which I think was number 2 of 21, which led to a great deal of trouble. And that gentleman is the, I think I heard the name, the Bristol Bullfinch. Now, spec 2 of 21 wanted an aeroplane that could be a single-seater monoplane, and at the same time, by taking out four bolts and screwing in a bit more of the control lines, you could turn it into a two-seater 
biplane. Now, what the hell did you call it? Because if it was a single-seater, you had to call it a bird. If it was a two-seater, you had to call it a mammal. But um, Bristol were faced with a considerable dilemma. I think the first suggestion was quite brilliant. They suggested it should be called Bristol Platypus. That was a duck and a sort of rat or something all mixed up together. But the ministry weren't in a very frivolous mood and they said they most certainly mustn't call it the platypus. So Bristol then became in the same serious frame of mind and so suggested that perhaps that they ought to call it the Pegasus, which was the winged horse and this seemed to meet the subject admirably. However, the ministry said, no, Pegasus is a constellation and you've got to reserve that for your engines. So that's where the engine name came from. So there's only one thing for it, they called it the bullfinch. So if it was a single-seater, it was the bullfinch, and if it was a two-seater, it was bull. And uh, apart from having the same name twice for the two different marks of the same aeroplane, there were, of course, a vast number of repetitions through our history, like fury, venom, vampire, comet, gannet, firefly, vulcan, and dove. And I have... Back from the days of the aeroplane spotter, I think Chris Barnes was one of the joint authors of this, where it said new names for old, and it's quite a remarkable list of aircraft where the name has come up time and time again. I think Fury has come up one way or another about the fourth time. However, in spite of all these strictures by the ministry, it was remarkable what a lot of vociferous correspondence went on on the subject and I was very privileged during the war to look through the files in the air ministry and there were some very rude letters in all directions about what the names should be and what they shouldn't be but if you look through the names and you apply them to these systems it's remarkable what a lot of exceptions there are now why there are those exceptions I have never discovered I think by this time, perhaps, the ministry were getting a bit tired of arguing over names. So, and whether they should be birds or whether they should be animals and what was the difference. So, in 1927, they then came out with a new system. This was based on letters. I think we want to go over to the left so we can read it. And you'll see that fighters land had to begin with F, fighters fleet with N, bombers P, I can't think of one on that, single engine. Bombers multiple B, yes, many of those. Torpedo bombers M, I can't think of any of those. Army cooperation A, yes, the kind of number of those. Ordax. Spotter and reconnaissance, fleet air arm S. Coastal reconnaissance R. Troop carriers C, Clive came under that, presumably. Training aircraft T, general aircraft G, and fighter reconnaissance O. Now, don't confuse Osprey with that, because Osprey was, of course, a seabird for a single-seater fighter. Now, one of the most vicious, furious bits of correspondence was between Sir Sidney Cam and the Ministry. And the rather sad thing is that after a council meeting on Thursday afternoon, I had a long conversation with Sir Sidney Cam, who told me a great deal more of his differences with the Ministry at this time, and regrettably he died on the following Saturday morning, so I was never able to take up his invitation to come and see some of his own personal papers on the subject. Presumably these weren't fit to keep on the file. Now, the fury was all over, in fact, over this aircraft. 
Now that vicious looking in, uh, insect is a hornet. And the original fury, which was coming out just about this time in 1927, was in fact the prototype fury, and it was called the Hawker Hornet. Now, why he managed to get Hornet out of a single-seater bird, I never did discover, and even Sir Sidney couldn't quite remember that one. But it did start life as the Hornet, and we had this furious correspondence, and the Ministry won the day and said, it's got to begin with an F, and so it became a Fury, a wonderful name, with a long and wonderful history. Uh, that is one of the classical Greek uh, Furies. There were three of them. Uh, Alcestes, I think, was one of them, and this was she. But I don't think I'm altogether strictly accurate in suggesting that Sir Sidney or the Ministry had this lady in mind when they actually named this aeroplane. But that was one of the Furies. Anyhow, she had got wings, so there's a certain romantic association. And there is the prototype Fury, the Hawker Hornet. Again, de Havilland's were a little bit upset when I suggested that theirs perhaps wasn't the first Hornet. Well, I don't know whether it was this correspondence or what it was, but in 1932, a yet another system of aircraft naming came into being. And for the first time, the fighter now ceased to be a bird or an animal, and under the category of nomenclature, general words indicating speed, activity, or aggressiveness. Now, from this sprang a long line, of course, of hurricane, tornado, typhoon, spitfire, and all the others. Even to lightning of today, that ruling still stands. But it's rather interesting, it started there, in this amended system in 1932. So far as the rest of them are concerned, they have hardly changed at all. In fact, if anything, they've gone back to the 1921 system. Uh, to the historical group, that should not be very difficult. The F-730, Vickers Supermarine, and that was the original officially named Spitfire. Had the Rolls-Royce Goshawk steam-cooled engine, and in fact practically every aircraft manufacturer of any repute in the country did have uh, the make an F-730 specification. What isn't perhaps known is that one aircraft company produced one of these aeroplanes, it was wheeled out of the hangar, and they never ever did find a test pilot who was willing to take it up, so it was promptly wheeled back in again. And that aircraft, I don't think, ever flew. Which manufacturer, perhaps I better not mention. But everybody made the F-730 with a steam-cooled Goshawk. It was not a success as an engine, and none of the aircraft saw service. But the name, of course, did become Spitfire, and I think, possibly, that is the most famous name in aviation history. It's very difficult to illustrate Spitfire, but I remember that during the war my wife did a magnificent drawing of a Spitfire in the dark with the entire illumination coming from the uh, particular one with four cannons. And this was a magnificent drawing. Uh, we did a lot of work together on producing a book 
which was accepted by a publisher, in fact corrected all the proofs, all the blocks made, and the publisher went broke. And that was the end of that book. Bombers were, of course, given the uh, names of towns or of places of historical military importance in British history. And Britain first, Lord Rothermere's Britain first, became the Bristol Blenheim. This was actually the little village of Blindheim in Austria where the battle was fought. And from whence, of course, Blenheim Palace, the birthplace of Churchill, got its name, which was the first home given by the nation to the Duke of Marlborough. And the Blenheim, of course, you know well. If I may digress, I'd just like to tell a sad little story here. The sole surviving Blenheim ones were used by the Finnish Air Force, and they were used up to about 1959-1960 on their MET flights. There were three left. One still had an airworthiness certificate and the other two were grounded. And this country was offered a Blenheim in flying condition with all the original military equipment, including the turret, for £250. And the offer was turned down. Now, I tried to get hold of this airplane and I actually got the Daily Mail as it was a Daily Mail Lord Rothermere aeroplane, to put up the money, and we got the wheels turning as fast as we could, and through a Finnish general I knew in the Air Force, we managed to get hold of this aeroplane, or so we thought, and I arranged with one or two test pilots I knew for uh, three of us to fly it back to England. Uh, however, the Finnish Air Force was so peeved that we should have turned down this very magnanimous offer, that they handed it over to their own uh, Air Force Museum. However, we tried to get hold of the other two Blenheims, which were then grounded, and once again we set the wheels turning and got the money, and the very day we discovered them, they were broken up in a broker's yard in uh, Helsinki. I think that was a shameful old thing, and I was very sad that I managed to lose that last Blenheim. It was the first aeroplane that flew on offensive patrol, the very first aeroplane that went up in World War II. And I think it's a sad thing for this country, and I hope this group agrees with me that such magnificent relics should, in fact, be allowed to go. There are, of course, many other stories like it. <coughs> now, in 1939, the system changed yet again. I think we'll have to go over, Mr. Pierce, to see what we mean on the left. The system was now reduced to its absolute basic simplicity. Fighters, as we've seen, general words indicating speed, activity or aggressiveness. The bombers were place names, an inland town of the British Empire or associated with British history. You've seen the Blenheim, the village of Blindheim. You can think of the Bombay, a whole host of them, Hayford and so forth, which were all bombers with inland towns of the British Empire. Army cooperation was, of course, the classical words, Lysander, Ordax, the two that you can think of. Transport were counties or districts of the British Empire. Flying boats were coastal towns and seaports. This had carried on for a long time, of course. Singapore, Cerro, London, Lerick, a whole host of those that you can think of. There was, incidentally, one thing that did puzzle me. It was a Blackburn iris. Now, an iris 
would appear to be a flower. But flowers passed out in 1918 in a storm of protest, so it couldn't possibly have been that, and it was, of course, a military aircraft. The only explanation I've ever found for the Blackburn Iris is that, in fact, there was a yacht called the Iris, which belonged to one of the directors or the chairman or something, and it was from this that the Blackburn Iris got its name. Other than that, to my date, there is no explanation. But I shall be coming on to one or two other Blackburn aircraft in a moment. Gliders had historical military leaders, and of course, during the war, you had Hengist and Horsa and a few other gliders, which were those. And naval aircraft, as proposed by the Admiralty. I suppose the Air Force was feeling, or <coughs> the Air Ministry was feeling a bit magnanimous in 1939, and this long, drawn-out battle uh, was having a bit of a lull. So you'll see that after all these years, the system had now come down to one of basic simplicity, and with one or two exceptions, you can slot almost any aircraft you know into those systems from that time on. Um, just to think of a few names on the fighters, Tornado, Tempest, Mosquito. Although, of course, we're now back at an insect, but it was aggressive, you must admit. The bombers, you've got Stirling, Halifax, Lancaster. Army co-op, Lysander, I've already mentioned. The General Torpedo planes was the Anson, surprisingly or not. Uh, that was the 1932 system, because it had come out before the war. And the Anson originally was, I believe, destined to be a Coastal Command Reconnaissance Torpedo aircraft. Similarly, the Shackleton uh, falls into that system. The transports, we had, which we've already mentioned, the Bombay is one. And even today, you've got the Beverly from the town of Beverly. Of the flying boats, well, any number you like to think of, Singapore, London, and Sunderland. Trainers, of course, had to be names uh, of tutorial names, but for some strange reason it excluded any RAF training establishment. So you couldn't have Cranwell or any of those names like that. Or Holton, or Handley Page Holton might have done very nicely, but uh, they were excluded from this. So you had Master, Tutor, Magister, Prentice, Balliol, and uh, Harvard. Harvarder, Bailey, my, Bailey or myself, old boy. A very interesting sidelight going back is in about 1927, the Air Ministry proposed that all trainers should be named after rivers, and all those rivers should begin with T, presumably T for trainers. So there was the Tay, the Trent, the Tweed, and so forth, and the Tyne, which might slightly put Rolls Royce's nose out of joint if their names had been taken by trainers. But that was an actual uh, suggestion at that time. Again, I suppose somebody protested violently, and it was hurriedly withdrawn. On the glider one, we've mentioned one or two. There was Hamilcar, and of course on the naval aircraft, we had the birds and the fishes. On the fish, a little bit of twist of history. I went to see my old friend Oliver Stewart, in that time, uh, editor of Aeronautics, and it's heyday, and I published a few things in Aeronautics, and <clears throat> I mentioned to Oliver my great interest in names. And uh, the very next issue, that appeared. 
I wasn't quite sure whether to be flattered or annoyed, but anyway, it, I thought it made rather a nice illustration. Now, of naval aircraft, you will undoubtedly recognize this fellow. That was the Blackburn Skewer, uh, the British dive bomber. And of course, the Skewer, splendid name, was a gull, a very ferocious gull. In fact, so ferocious that it uh, attacks all the other gulls, makes them sick, and then eats their food. I suppose this was a splendid appellation for the British dive bomber. Now, they developed the skewer. I sometimes wonder whether developed is the right word. And they turned it into a sort of uh, affair with a gun at the back. And uh, they called it the fulmar. I beg your pardon. Um, the rock, I'm sorry. Yes, of course, they called it the rock. So you had the Blackburn Rock. Now, when I became interested in this subject of names, I wrote to all the manufacturers, drew up a list of what I thought the names were, and left a column blank, please, why did you call it this name? Uh, unfortunately, I've lost all those papers now, but it was a most interesting um, history within itself. And most of the manufacturers responded magnificently to this, because they were told, of course, it was going to be published in a book. And um, I wrote to Bruff, and I asked them, of course, what this, why did they call it the rock? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, it falls into the system of naming, and it's a Yorkshire seabird. Now, the rock, for those of you who, of course, read your Arabian Nights, was a mythical bird, it may have been true, I don't know, which lived in the island of Madagascar, and there is Aladdin, of the Arabian Nights being taken away by the rock. So if you ever wonder, gentlemen, where the Blackburn Rock got its name from, and you ever visit the Yorkshire coast, and you're very lucky and got your binoculars, you will see an interesting sight. Now, Blackburn in themselves led me to a lot of trouble. Anybody recognize that airplane? That was the Blackburn Lincock, which I'm told was probably the finest aerobatic airplane that was ever built. It was before my time, so I wouldn't know. Now, would anybody like to suggest why it was called a lincock? Well, as a bird, it sounds a very plausible name. So I dashed around to the nearest university and sought out the library and sought out the ornithological section and took out the best books on the subject and look up lincock. It doesn't appear. It no longer exists or it never did exist. The nearest I got was a slang name, which showed how deep I was in research at this time, of a linty cock, but it wasn't a linty cock. And thinking this over, it dawned on me one day that in actual fact it was a black, um, black cock, but they just put an Armstrong Sydney Lynx engine in it, and therefore it became the Lynx cock. Uh, I'd like to break back and go into a very much earlier bit of history. One of the names I discovered in the Air Ministry lists was Denby, D-E-N-B-I-G-H. From its alliteration, it should have been made by de Havillands, and it should have been a uh, two-seat bomber, because it was an inland town in the British Empire, Denby in North Wales. 
When I wrote to de Havilland, and I think Martin Sharp was there at that time, no one had ever heard of the Denby, and to this day, no real, I think, final answer, and to my knowledge, this is the only aircraft of all the ones, hundreds I've been through, to which I've never really finally pinned it down. It possibly could have been the Doncaster, which I think was a DH-21, am I right, am I wrong? Uh, or it could have been something called the DH-39, which mysteriously disappeared as soon as it had been built. Now, why it had disappeared as soon as it had been built, I never did discover. But Denby is one of, the, I think, the sole remaining mystery of those aircraft. Again, if I may digress, and Bruce was in at the early days of this story, I did a television program some years ago, and going through Parnells, who are now making washing machines, I came across a photograph uh, which excited me immensely because it was the Zeppelin, Parnell Zepstrafer of 1916. Now, this had been heard about and had been whispered about, but I don't think anybody ever actually believed that the Zepstrafer existed. And here we finally had proof, and Parnell themselves didn't even know that it was there. A very strange coincidence occurred out of this. Arising out of this and one or two other aircraft, like the Chocolate Soldier, uh, I was asked to write an article for Flight, which was published under the names of uh, <coughs> Genuine Antiques. And I happened to be writing this article in the library of the Royal Aero Club. I've never done such a thing before or since. And uh, Mr. Davis was there, whom I knew, who had been the first man who flew an aircraft in India. This was a box kite. And he said, um, what have you got there? So I said, well, I'm writing an article for flight. And rather nonchalantly, I tossed him the photograph of this Zepstrafer, which to that date I wasn't aware anybody had seen, or at least recognized it. And I said, I bet you've never seen anything like that. And a look of astonishment came over his face. And he said, you're not going to believe me. But he said, up to 1916, I was the chief test pilot at Parnell's. And in fact, I was their chief designer as well. He said, now, I didn't even know this aeroplane was ever built, but I did design it. Uh, because I left at that time. Why nobody knew about it was apparently when they came to test stress it, and uh, the AID had a look at it, they decided it was a horribly dangerous aeroplane. All the drawings were destroyed, the aircraft was burnt, and supposedly all the photographs were burnt except this one. I think there are copies of it, and it was certainly published in flight, but my original copy of it is now at the bottom of the Thames. So that, I think, was a, a remarkable coincidence. Perhaps even stranger is that there is a Vickers aeroplane of some years later, which is the identical copy of the Zepstrafer, but presumably they'd restressed it by this time and the really ardent student of history can go and discover for himself which one it was. Now, there was, of course, one or two other little mysteries. That one I think you might know. That was the Hawker Woodcock. And this led to one or two other strange names as well. There was the woodcock himself, whom I think Shakespeare 
uh, <coughs> explained as having a note like a key turning in a rusty lock. However, the woodcock led its name to the Danecock and the Turcock. And it took a little bit of thought to find out that one, of course, had been sold to Turkey and the other one had been sold to Denmark, and that's where it got its name from. Now, we've seen that right back from the early days, we had these reservations in the aircraft names. So, Rolls-Royce had the birds of prey, We've got the Falcon, the Eagle, Twice, Peregrine, Merlin. I've even seen advertisements of uh, at least one people who made some of the, supplied some of the metals for the Merlin uh, in the advertisements showing it as Merlin the Wizard. But as you well now know, it was of course Merlin the Bird of Prey. And I think that was a wonderful lot of names for an engine. But I sometimes wonder, perhaps, whether they wouldn't have been better names for fighters, because the fighters were birds of prey rather than snipes and avocets and other rather tame creatures like that. I think perhaps this was a historical mistake, but uh, it's a bit late now, isn't it? So we had these, the Felidae, of course, with the cats, the panther, the tiger, and so forth. But they also had Canes, the dogs, from 1934. Bristol, of course, had the planets and the constellations, this wonderful tradition going right, almost by accident, from 1910, right the way through. And Bristol's are the only one of all the engine manufacturers who have, in fact, kept to this name. <coughs> there was some doubt as to what would happen when uh, Armstrong Sidley engines and the Bristol engines joined together, but it was decided, of course, that the Bristol names at Filton would carry on as they always had done. And I would hope that would continue. The only change, I think, that has come about from that 1939 system is that they course the V-bombers, Victor, Vulcan, and Valiant. And other than that change, I think I'm correct in saying that there has been no change from the 39-39 system. So if you even look at one or two bombers of today, except the V-bombers, you will find those. English Electric Canberra, Canberra, an inland town in the British Empire. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, that just about brings me, I think, to the end of the story. And I should just like, in my mind, to come back to which I think is the most wonderful name of all time. It's not meant to be the Armstrong Siddeley Tiger, but the nearest, having lost that wonderful drawing Spitfire at night, of a Spitfire. Now, <coughs> Spitfire has many definitions, and if you look it up in a dictionary, you will find that Spitfire is a thing which emits or vomits fire, I think rather nice, especially a cannon. So it did have uh, that annotation. Fire spitting, figuratively irascible, displaying anger or hot temper. Spitfire, a cat in an angry state. As a nautical term, Spitfire is the Spitfire jib, or the storm jib of a sailing vessel. And to end, ladies and gentlemen, 
just two quotations which I found. One was by William Walton towards the end of the last century, which said, Who have found another so shod with fire, so crowned with thunder, and so armed with wrath divine? And a nice little one of Lord Hammer Amherst to his mistress in 1762, Not so fast, I beg of you, my dear little Spitfire. Thank you very much. very much indebted to you, not only for telling us about names of aircraft, how they came about, but also, incidentally, giving us a lot of internal history of the aircraft firms themselves, and of people such as their designers who impress names on aircraft. I think I'm correct in suggesting Spitfire was due entirely through the designer. He said, I will not have any other name. You've disagreed in the ministry. You've suggested all sorts of things. This aircraft spits fire and is going to be a spitfire. I think that is, I think that is true. And I think I might mention another one. The Iris, which you mentioned. There again, there were so many disputes in the ministry that, uh, Blackburn said, I have a yacht, or a friend had a yacht, it's called the Iris, this shall be the Iris. You're quite right, I think, there. I might interpose on these two items which you left a little bit in the air. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's now open to you. Uh, I don't think you'll find him, Mr. Wanborough, white wrong in any of his history. I think it's remarkable the amount of history he's given us, which, to my knowledge, is so accurate. But there may be some odd questions you'd like to ask him. For instance, why, why was that uh, famous uh, aircraft in the war, the, uh, the fighter used so much in the Mediterranean, the um, string bag? Why was it called string bag? Do you know? I think it looks like a string bag. <laughs> <laughs> It either looked like one or it carried it. I wouldn't know the absolute origin of it, but I think it's as good a good a explanation as any. Have you ever seen the um, string bag come by? I it's a magnificent sight with a petty officer and a matelow at the back, in full uniform, standing up and saluting as they as they went by. Can I ask you if Lydia uh, over here had any uh, influence on the aircraft during the war? Did we, for example, uh, visit Dakota yes. or any of the other American Dakota, we certainly did, because when the, uh, it was one of the first American aircraft that came over, uh, derivation of DC-2 and DC-3, we did, of course, say that, please, would you give it a name? And I think it was a joint effort, but we suggested it should be after an American state, and that's where the Dakota came from. Of course, many of them had names. There was an American name. I can't think of one offhand that could have. Uh, 
its method into it. There were some that had American names, then they had a British name, and of course we gave them to Russia, where they became originally designed Russian aircraft. Guess what the TSR two would be? But I think it should have been a very good one. Uh, I did suggest a long list of names to the Bristol Aeroplane Company of what some of their aircraft could be, and Peter Macefield was quite interested. But then he and I left Bristol on the same day, I think more by council than something else. So I don't suppose they were ever followed up. I, I don't know what they would have called it. But presumably it would have been a word of, of aggression. Napier in uh, weapons. Um, what about lion? Any idea what they're This is perfectly true. Um, now, a lion is a cat, isn't it? It's the same, it's a fairly die, isn't it? In which case, it certainly broke the rule, but then there was a Napier cub as well, wasn't there? And of course, Nap Napier wandered on later on to other, to other things, didn't they? There were other names that they gave later on. Similarly, de Havilland had engines, and they had ghosts and all those sort of eerie things. Did Rolls-Royce produce an X engine? Yeah. Oh, Vulture, wasn't it? Yes, which is uh, the name of a river. Oh, Vulture's a bird of prey. <laughs> <laughs> so the point I was going to make, uh, Rolls-Royce appeared to have changed the river. They did with the gas turbines. Yeah, before that, because there was the Rolls-Royce X. Oh, you don't, you mean... No, there was a Rolls-Royce X as a letter which became Vulture, because it was a double Merlin. There was a Rolls-Royce X. There was a Rolls-Royce R too, wasn't there? Well, the Rolls-Royce R was the um, S6B engine, wasn't it? That was, that was the racing engine, yes. And was, of course, the prototype, really, of the, of the Merlin, wasn't it? Uh, can I uh, raise a question you have here? thing that always puzzled me about they have those moths, was that uh, after the first few, like swallow moth, um, hawk moth, um, they started having things which I suspect never existed on the like type moth. No, they do exist. They do. Perhaps this is a fault of mine, for which I apologise, but it's just a question in one hour, what do you mention and what don't you? Um, the tiger moth was certainly that all those moths are, are genuine moths, every one of them, fox moth, puss moth, tiger moth, swallow moth, Gypsy moth. They are all genuine. Uh, they are all genuine uh, moth. I hope to republish this book in different form, but uh, there are a whole series of stories you can add to it. Particularly on the engine side, I've written a book on, or rather, an article on the uh, names of engines. I think 15 years ago, brought it up to date from time to time. I think Flight had it for seven years. And I think John Taylor of AirBP's had it for the last five, but I suppose one day now will <laughs> come out of it. The, uh, they made a very wonderful job, you can see it if you like, of um, this one on the names of birds, which is called the Birds and Bees. And uh, this one here, they, they really went to town on that, made a super job of it with a whole series of beautiful plates, including one there of the, of the tiger moth. And I think this was the first time, it was a hell of a job to put it together, 
and really need the punch card system to do it, of all the known names of birds and flying insects at that time. And there's similarly in the engine article when it comes out, they're talking and doing it on these lines. You mentioned the name Dendry. Yes. Collection of this, but I seem to recall hearing or seeing something that Denby was intended to be a name for the DH9A post-war Somehow or another, DH9A was always a 9 act, and here, 9 act at the main. I don't know how true this is. It's probably well, a I don't think it, it never, unless gentlemen from the Air Ministry Library can get down to this one, Denby has never been. Gordon Swanborough was the last one who went chasing after it. I gave him the early leads. I, I don't know, it's years since I've looked at it. Well, uh, Dominic, of course, is the second time it's come up, hasn't it? Uh, there's a whole host of names. I mean, there must be about 40 or 50 names which are coming up for the second time. I mean, even you take uh, uh, de Havilland Venom, the jet fighter the Venom, uh, previously been Vickers Venom of Longyear. Don't remember the talk. Neither do I ever remember hearing of the Denby. You never remember the Denby? No. It is a name from the mystery list, and that's where I picked it up. How did the Nat get his name? I think because it was just a small fighter, and that was, it just had to be small. It was a Nat, it was aggressive, so it fitted the appellation under a single seat fighter. What happens when it became a two-seat fighter? It should really have then become an animal. Andover is a transport, really, isn't it? Yes, they didn't really cater for transports, did they? So they presumably thought the nearest thing to it was a bomber. It's an inland town. Avro, Avro Andover, it alliterates, so it became an Andover. Oh yes, uh, I've got somewhere in down here, I've got a series of fish. All sorts of things. A short gurnard. That was a very strange fish. There was quite a lot of them. There was the Avro pike, and uh, I think Parnell had one or two fishes as well. Parnell perch. Who was one of those fish? Basically, I think you'll find they, they, they break into birds, animals, the constellations, the mythological creatures of Greek mythology, historical names, towns, and winds, except for the sycamore as a tree. And of course the idea of that was the sycamore seed. I think in actual fact it was a, an official air ministry ruling that, that helicopters would be called after trees. I've never seen this in print, but uh, the sycamore was an obvious one, but what others you would have called them I don't know. Pito? Yes. Parnell Pito. Uh, Pito, I think, is a bird. P-E-T-O, isn't it? I think you'll find it's a kind of a duck. Oh, there were the most despairing letters from the Air Ministry and the manufacturers to the London zoos. Could they please think of <laughs> some, more, some more waterfowl? Because <laughs> I couldn't think of any more. A bit farther, when you come to think of the, the winds, are particularly happy names Typhoon, Psy Moon. Of course, Psy Moon was an early Beardmore engine. And there was a Beardmore Typhoon, I think. There was about a dozen Beardmore engines with wind names before Hawkers had them. They were very good names, I think. 
And then you had, of course, the Westland Whirlwind. And the Welkin. Does anybody know what a Welkin is? It's, yes, but it's a, it's a sky or a thunderstorm or something like that. It's a poetic name for a thunderstorm. Let the Welkin ring. Have you looked into the name of aircraft in other countries? Uh, they, they adopted similar systems? No. Uh, the Americans used names during the war merely to fall in, I think, with the British. The moment the war was over, they virtually dropped them and they went back to numbers. I don't think there's very much, anything very romantic about American numbers. <laughs> there are names? They're all B's or F's or C's or... Well, then the, yes, you're right. They're coming back again then, aren't they? But there was a section at the time after the war, and except for the original Wasp and the Whirlwind engines, certainly all the engines have gone now. Perhaps I'm thinking more of engines and aircraft. All the engines have gone just by names and letters. I don't think today there's a single named uh, American engine, is there? But the... I think the impression I have is when I started this game about 1939, uh, I haven't really dealt with it for years now, but I was astonished at how many aeroplanes there were that one had normally never even heard of in ordinary everyday parlance until you started looking up books of reference. And it seemed to be an endless series of names. And then when you started adding in the type numbers, which in fact never were given names, and this, incidentally, if there's anybody from Vickers, I find it very hard to forgive them, because I spent years chasing type numbers from Vickers, and later discovered that if they got a bundle of drawings and they didn't know quite where to find it, they just gave it a type number and put it away. And this was, <laughs> this was their filing system, <laughs> which for an itinerant historian was extremely irritating. <laughs> Was it the aircraft main committee who decided on the policy for the names of missiles? Uh, then it was about 10 years ago, Blue Walker and... Uh, yes. This, this was official ministry. Uh, I've kept them out of this one. Then again, you, strange enough, you find that a lot of these names start repeating, uh, repeating old aircraft names, including American ones. Well, I don't want to stop you asking any more questions, but we've gone past our usual hour. I think you've already shown by the number of questions you've thrown at the lecturer how much you've appreciated his, uh, his talk and the history that he's given with it. I ask you to thank him in the usual manner. <laughs>